Hey, you're listening to the Upper Room Podcast. To learn more about Upper Room, please visit URDallas.com. Light is not afraid of the darkness. And, uh, and I, I'm like, I remember when we first started the Upper Room, I was like, Lord, I don't, first we were like, it's not a church, it's not a church, we didn't want to be pot committed to being a church, I just knew what that would entail, so we were just a prayer meeting, but when the Lord started speaking to me about being a church, we were in Oak Lawn, and I was like, God, I don't want to plant a church in Oak Lawn, (laughs) no, it's just, it's not the place, like, the place you want to plant a church is like in the burbs, baby. Give me, give me young families. Give me people that are just like me. That's what I want. I can pastor me. <laughs> I know my issues. I'm familiar with them. And so just give me people like that. When I looked around Oakland, I was like, this is not me. It just wasn't. And, uh, and yet the Lord was so very clear, like, this is where I've planted you. And I went kicking and screaming and wiggling, trying to get out of burbs. <laughs> no, Oaklawn. And um, I'm going to hop into my message. Is that cool? I'm going to just use this as an on-ramp. Um, let me say a few disclaimers before I do. It, it'll help you, you get there. Burbs, remember that, all right? Um, I want to hop into a two-week series where I talk about prayer. We are, we are at the heart, heart, heart of us. We're house prayer. And so we gather for that. You're going to hear a little bit of our history. I know if you've been here for any amount of time, you've probably heard some of this, but I just, I just don't want to apologize for telling you where we've been because it'll direct you into where we're going and we're, we're, we're being grafted into a story here. And so, um, you're being grafted into a story if you're new. And so, uh, yeah, I want to talk about prayer. I want to I talk about your highest ministry. And I want to make it very simple for you today. I want to give you one practical tool today um, that, that has been the foundation for our community. It has really transformed my life. And if I could title this message, I would title it The Little Hinge. Everyone say The Little Hinge. I would call it The Little Hinge. And I want to show you the power of this little hinge um, in the spirit and how it can impact your life. It's just the smallest little thing, but it's what this community is founded upon. And so I wanna share our history so you can know what the little hinge was and, uh, and how we got to where we got to. Is that cool? Yeah. Bring, it. Yeah. bring it. All right, I'm gonna bring it. Uh, so reluctantly, I found myself in Oakland. I had an invitation from a business leader to start a prayer room. Um, to start a prayer meeting in an upper room that was called Upper Room because that's where it was. The business owner called it the Upper Room, so that's how we got our name. Um, I say it all the time. I would never name my church Upper Room. It's just the inherited historical pressures, Pentecost weekend. It's every stinking year, and you're just like, if you're Upper Room, man, big things better happen on Pentecost. Um, You know what I mean? It's like, what do we do? We're the tongues of fire. <laughs> You're the upper room. So um, anyways, it was called Upper Room because it was logistically, it got this, the, the name that way. And, and, and so we were in Oak Lawn and I was like, Lord, I, I don't want to plant a church in Oak Lawn, man. It was a church playing graveyard. We saw churches come and go. And, and the Lord spoke something, some, something to me so clearly 
uh, early on, and, and he said this. He said, you're not coming down here to minister to people. You're coming down here to minister to me. And that, that, really, that really shattered my paradigm. And some of y'all have heard me say that, but it's still shattering my paradigm. I'm still having to put that before us. Um, because ministering to Jesus, if you're a believer, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've been born again, your primary ministry, I know I could like throw a rock, say, hey, what's your ministry? What's your ministry? What's your ministry? And everyone could name probably a burden that they've been given by God that's called purpose to fulfill on the earth. But I'm telling you that that's secondary to this primary ministry, that your primary ministry is to minister to Jesus. First commandment, Matthew 22. Jesus turned it upside down when this Pharisee said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus revealed so something, so, something so important about the nature and heart of God. He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God to love him, to love him. That's the greatest commandment, to love him. And in our, in our Western world, what we've done is we've, we've said we're gonna love him by doing things for him. And that's actually entering into the second command because the second command is loving people. And oftentimes we mistake the first command for the second or in the name of the first, we do the second, but doing the second isn't the first. The first is actually you loving him. And if you're married and you have a significant other, you know you just doing things for your spouse isn't enough, especially if they're a quality time person, which, which I'm married to one, a quality time person. You know what I mean? Who's married to a quality time person? It's like, whoa, you really mean quality time. Like, we're going to spend time together. You really want me to sit beside you and listen to you. You know what I mean? You're like, well, guess what? You have a quality time God. <laughs> he loves spending time with you. And listen, that commandment isn't as much. I mean, it is. It reveals a lot about God and, his, and, and, and how he's designed like to receive love. But it says a lot about you and your value that he would say your love for him moves him. It stirs him. You, little old you, little weak you, little feeble you making it through the world. When you do things, when you come before him and you offer an offering of love, the creator of heaven and earth is provoked. He's moved. He's stirred. <laughs> It's not about what we do. It's about who we are. And, and, and there's, this, there's this place of loving him that he's calling us to. And so when the Lord said, I'm not calling you to Oakland to minister to people. I'm calling you to minister to me. It made it so simple. It just, I got delivered from so much. All of my training was centered upon productivity. It was centered upon like, like, like ministering to people is measurable. I can measure this weekend. We can measure how many people came. We can measure how much money was given. We can measure how much from the weeks prior to the months prior to the years prior. We say, whoa, we've been productive. But listen to me, that isn't, this is not that. This isn't that. I, I don't take a number. I don't have a number that I know every, every time you gather. I don't know. I don't know because that's not, that's not the measurement that I'm living by. Our measurement is our offering to him. And, and listen, it's really hard to measure that. When you get into like, how are we going to measure loving God as a community? That's really a hard measurement, yes? And oftentimes that's why it's neglected, because it just doesn't seem productive to sit in a room and tell him, we love you. Oh, we love you. 
We love you. And he, I love you. I love you. We love you. We love you. We love you. We love you. It's this, it's this, this, this like Mary of Bethany offering of us breaking open our lives and just wasting it all in that place like that to me is where we're heading. And so when Jesus said, you're not coming down for them, you're coming down for me. I was like, man, because the opening days of Oaklawn, like when we were in Oaklawn, I know a ton about Oaklawn. I was a North Dallas kid and didn't come down to Oaklawn a ton. But the first weekend we moved in, um, my wife and I went to oh, this really cool eatery. What was that place? The Cafe Brazil. That was our go-to on Cedar Springs. And we were there. We was with walking distance. We had this cool little townhome. We were in, living the urban life and just moved in. It was our first Sunday. And so we went down there and um, we were walking out of the brunch place and this guy was walking. And he was in cowboy boots, he had a cowboy hat, he had a pearl snap shirt, and he had chaps on, like cowboy chaps on. And he walks by, he's like, howdy. And I'm like, howdy, <laughs> you know, how you doing? And, uh, and as he passed, we turn around, and we didn't know this from the front side, but on the back side, you can, say, you can see he had nothing on underneath those chaps. <laughs> and we're like, uh, we're not in North Dallas anymore, yo. <laughs> I know that story. That's like, the, that's like the most PG-rated story I could share about our experiences in Oakland. But we saw a lot when we were in Oakland. We just saw a lot. There's a, the homeless community, the urban life. It was just really unique. And so, again, kicking and screaming. But the Lord said, you did not come down here for people. You came down here for me. You came down here to minister to me. And... That really simplified it for us. And so we just started gathering. And when the presence of Jesus would come and we were giving him thanks, we were giving him praise, we just felt this overwhelming pleasure from the Lord that we're being successful in his eyes. And it delivered us from all these weird measurements of what true success is. And I just feel like we need to get back to the simplicity and purity of devoting ourselves to the Lord in this way that your primary ministry is a ministry that's first and foremost to him, beloved. It makes life really simple. The complications, the busyness, the, the striving and the buzz, it tends to die when you truly set this before you. In Dallas, Texas, we live a very fast-paced life, and this is counterculture. It's subversive, even in the church. Amen. And so I was like, the Lord took me on this journey to figure out what it means to minister to him. And I just want to share that with you this morning. Is that cool? First Chronicles, if you have your Bibles, we can go on a quick journey. I'm going to give you the hinge. The hinge. Uh, my friends from Together Generation are out there. Um, they have a massive event coming up. Uh, at the Texas Motor Speedway. It is October 20th and 21st. They're expecting 100,000 people um, in our region. It's gonna be really cool. So they're looking for volunteers and people. If you can go out there, uh, here's a flyer and they have them out there. Uh, Jung and his team are there. So when you're leaving out, if that strikes chord with you, go see it. Um, so this is a scripture that a lot of us are familiar with, but then I'm gonna hop to uh, a scripture that I've never put before you in this context. So bear with me if I'm repeating some things. Uh, because I, I, I do have 
I do have a, a goal, and, and I, I hope to reiterate something that you know, but just in a fresh way. So 1 Chronicles chapter 13, um, this is a significant text. This is probably uh, the section of text that has marked my life as a leader the most, um, as, as, as a leader. Uh, there's a leadership crisis on the earth in this hour. It is significant, and it is growing. We need anointed leaders we do, man. We need leaders that aren't responding to someone else or something else, but they're responding to the word of the Lord. There's just, the word of the Lord is rare right now when it comes to these public leaders. It's just, it's rare to hear someone who is anointed by God to speak on his behalf to government officials, to even on CNN. Like, I just look at people that represent Jesus on these networks, and Jesus is just a pawn in the conversation that people are using to win an argument. But when the word of the Lord comes forth, it will strike hearts. And we're, I believe God, there's these leaders that are emerging in the church. I believe they're emerging in the business world. And I believe they're gonna emerge in the political realm that are pierced with the word of the Lord. And when they begin to speak, people will be moved. Not because they're winning an argument, but because of who they're speaking for and from. And God's raising them up, man, but, but, but I, wanna, I, wanna, I wanna show you the types of leaders that they are. And it's found in 1 Chronicles 13, and it's David. D David was a man after God's own heart. I did, we're so familiar with the life of David. We're so familiar with, with what he accomplished. He accomplished God's purposes for his generation. Like, we esteem him, we love him. He is like the quintessential leader that we should study and figure out why God was so attracted to him. We pull out principles about Goliath, and, and there's just a lot that we could study in his life. But I, I wanna boil it down to one thing, and I wanna boil it down to one verse. This is what made David David. And I believe this is what's going to make leaders, these types of leaders in the coming hour. And I believe if you're a millennial, especially, it's why you're being drawn to the upper room because I wanna tattoo this on your heart. I want you, I want this to be the framework that you view your future through. And if this lands in your heart, something will shift dramatically in your life. There's a grace that you will discover if you'll give your life over to this verse. I mean a grace, it's a grace, not, it's not a grace, it's a grace that God has reserved for people that will like fully go all in and anti up their life around this verse. I am convinced of it, but there are many, many, many options for you. But when you say this is the only option, a grace meets you. Grace follows faith. And I believe God is looking for leaders that will put their faith in this one thing that I'm about to share with you. I am like so deeply convicted about it. Like I thought it was true, but I now have about a decade of history with this verse and living this lifestyle. And now I'm convicted that I know it's true. But it will interrupt you. It'll interrupt things. For some of us, we need a course correction. For others of us, we just need to re-ante, we need to ante up our lives and say, I'm gonna commit to this one thing. And the backdrop commentary for it's uh, Psalms 132. I'm not going to go into that, but if, if, man, if this pierces your heart, Psalms 132 is a, a great text to sit upon. But this is Psalms 132 in a verse. So David, CNN's there, Fox News is there, ABC, NBC, PBS, NPR, 
C-SPAN, everyone has their cameras on David. He's been anointed as the king of Israel and Judah. He had been anointed as a little teenage kid in the pasture lands, and he's been fighting for this moment that he's going to unveil, this is why I'm the anointed one. This is why God put his spirit upon me and put me in this place. It's for this reason. It's this story. And so David gathers all the leaders. He gathers the captains, the generals. He gathers, he specifically says in verse two, he says, get the priests and the Levites who are with them in their cities and pasture lands that they may meet with us. In verse three is the verse. This is the verse. It says, let us bring back the ark of our God to us for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Meaning there's, there's a reformation that's taking place. We're going to do something that has not been done. We're going to go get that box that's been stowed in a barn. It wasn't even in the holiest of holies for like 20 plus years that had been just stowed away. They had neglected the box because they were afraid of the box. They didn't know what to do with the box. So they just went about business as usual and put the box away. And I think it's a prophetic picture of something. <laughs> I think it's a perfect picture of where we are as a people. And I feel like God is looking for leaders that will say, listen, this is the answer for our hour. We've got to put the presence before us once again. We've got to put the presence before us. And it's not just a me thing. It's an us thing. He collectively calls the, the nation to this call. It was one leader calling all to this one thing. And what David was saying is this. He was saying, I've been a follower of him. And as a follower of him and as a follower of this box or of the one who rests upon this box, as a follower, now I'm a leader. And because I'm a leader, I'm still a follower. And so I'm calling my... Oh, we good, we good, we good. We good. We good. <laughs> Woo. Woo. Okay. Okay. So as a, as a follower, as a follower of the box, I'm now a leader. And now as a leader, I'm calling my followers to be leaders of what they're following. As a, this is David. This is what this verse is saying. He's saying, as a follower of what the box represents, which is the presence. So as a follower of the leader, I'm now a leader. And as a leader, I'm now calling my followers to be leaders in following me, follow him. <laughs> I'm not asking you to follow me. David's not saying, David isn't standing up saying, I'm the anointed one, and I'm going to lead us to fight the Amalekites. I'm the anointed one. Follow me, because we're going to go defeat the Philistines. I'm the anointed one. We have a problem in the nation of Israel. Whatever it is, he's not saying, I have the answers. He's saying, listen, I've just been following the box. And that's why I'm in the position that I'm in. And with that history with God, he has now entered into that grace and stewarded that grace, and he finds himself in a position of authority to truly call people to that place. And I believe, I know it, that God is raising up leaders 
that aren't settling for neat, cute principles and neat, like customized meetings where we're doing the, the, the polished sheen where it's like consumeristic Christianity where it's like, how can we keep feeding them stuff that's gonna attract more people? It's just, nah, we're gathering for one reason and it's because God shows up. If God does not show up here, we shouldn't gather. <laughs> that's a bold statement. But I just, I just wanna put a press on the Lord that it is, it is, it is like, man, we've gotta have him. We've got to have him. And that's what David's saying. He's saying, listen, I am so humbled by the position that I'm finding myself in. The problems are too numerous. There's too many things that I'm confronted with. And all I know to do is to put that box in front of us. And we're going to pursue it. So what did that look like for him? It's really important because, again, I'm in Oakland. I read this. I had a leadership call in my life, and I was, like, overwhelmed because I wasn't feeling that burden for the people. And I'm, like, thinking about strategies and my training. And I'm, like, I'm just overwhelmed. Minister to me. I can do that. So I read David and I start digging in it and I see this thing about putting the box before us in the presence, which I was already pretty marked by. But as I started studying David, I was like, well, what did David do? What did David do? Well, this is what David did. David, if you, if you skip forward two chapters, uh, well, David actually, David got the box out and it went really bad um, because Uzzah died. And, um, and listen, Uzzah's death was David's fault. I want to say that really quickly. Uzzah's death was David's fault. Da- David, David had a strategy that killed someone because he didn't approach the Lord rightly. And I feel like some of you have been around leaders that maybe like the structure hurt you. And I just want to apologize for them. I don't think they did it on purpose. I think their intent was pure. I think David's intent was pure here. He just didn't know what he didn't know. And there's a lot of people, they just don't know what they don't know. And we need to have grace and mercy for people that just didn't know what you may know that they didn't. They weren't doing it to spite you or hurt you. They were just operating out of the limited revelation that they had. And listen, I have limited revelation too. And I'm sure up a room at some point, you may, you may get hurt or it may provide some form of death to you. And I want to apologize in advance, but don't gather Gather because we're going after the presence, right? And so just walk in mercy towards your leaders. But Uzzah was dead, and that wasn't a good thing. And so everyone kind of freaked out, like, this is your agenda. You're going to put the box in front of us, and it killed a man. It's killed us in the past. Let's stow it away. And so David did. He stowed it in Obed-Edom's house. And everything in Obed-Edom's house was blessed, everything. It was like crazy. But David goes in, and he studies, and he starts to figure out, like, Lord, what is it that I didn't do right? What is it that I need to change? Why didn't this work out? Why is there a man it's dead. And, uh, and he finds out, and, 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 and in verse 15, he rolls out the appropriate way to pursue this box or to pursue the presence. So 1 Chronicles 15, I want to go there real quickly. If you have your Bibles, 1 Chronicles 15, verse 1. Um, it says, now David built houses for himself in the city of God. He prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent. So this this is David's tabernacle, which we're fairly familiar with. If you're not, it was different than Moses's tabernacle. David's tabernacle was a room probably twice the size of this. It was this big tent they put uh, kind of on the hill of Mount Zion uh, above Israel. And they marched the box into the center of this room that was open space. And what David did in verse two, it says, now no one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites. So he put Levites near the box for the Lord chose them to carry the, the ark of God and to minister to him. Everyone say that last word 
forever. So to minister to him forever. So well, I'm not a Levite. I am a Levite. We're all Levites because Levites are priests. And according to 1 Peter 2, 9, you are a part of a royal priesthood. You're a chosen race. So you have a priestly call. You have a priestly call just like these guys did. But God, the presence of God doesn't rest on strategies. The presence of God doesn't rest on plans. The presence of God doesn't rest on buildings. The presence of God rests on the hearts of his people. It rests on people, collective people gathering, individuals and collective people. And the thing that, I, the thing that really stuck out about the box here is that, is that the Levites, the priests, uh, the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God. And then, and then this phrase, it's what the Lord told me about Oaklawn, and to minister to him. That was that phrase, to minister to him, to minister to him. And that gets me, man, because, because God has him who he's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent. Like he, he needs nothing from us, yet this says we can minister to him. Like when I think of ministry, I think of like the orphans. I think of the sick. I think of widows. Why? Because there's an obvious need there. But this isn't about God's need. This is about God's desire. This is about how God has positioned himself before us that we can move him, that we refresh him, that we're, he's stirred when we approach him, and that's a significant thing. Are you following me? And so when I saw that, 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 that David put, he put these Levites in this room, and, and if you read the rest of this chapter, which were not, the Levites, the, the, the main things that they did is they played instruments and they sang songs. And uh, so he put, he put instruments and musicians and singers, and then he also put gatekeeper and intercessors around it. And this worship movement hit for 33 years. It was the most extravagant, singular worship offering that the earth has ever seen. Never has there been uh, an offering like this in a single place. Um, it cost billions of dollars a year to fund. And so David's tabernacle is established. Um, but I, I want to fast forward if you go to the next chapter in, in 1 Chronicles 16. This is really good. So they brought the ark of God, placed it inside, verse 1, the tent, pitched for it. They offered burnt offerings, peace offerings. David finished the offering. Then he blessed the people. And then in verse 4, he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to celebrate, to thank, and to praise. Everyone see those words? Celebrate, thank, and to praise. And then Asaph, who's the chief? So Asaph is the head guy. Um, and then he lists others that play instruments. Um, and they're gonna blow trumpets. They're gonna give loud sounding cymbals. And then in verse seven is what I wanted to highlight. I just want you to see this really quickly. Because remember, I told you I'm gonna tell you about a small hinge that opens a big door. Um, then on that day, David first assigned, first assigned, his first assignment was to Asaph, who was the chief Overall, so it wasn't this assignment wasn't just to one man. He gave it to one man, but it was for everyone that they were assigned to give thanks to the Lord. They were assigned to give thanks to the Lord, and so David breaks out in song. And then at the end of his song, in verse thirty-seven, David left Asaph there. So he left Asaph and his relatives, the ones that he commissioned to give thanks. He left before the Ark of the Covenant, to minister before the Ark continually as every day's work required. So they did it continually and they did it daily. They gave thanks to the Lord. Does everyone see that? Pretty simple, yes? Pretty simple, like give thanks. 
give thanks. So here I am in Oak Lawn. Here we are giving thanks to the Lord. Uh, in the morning, in the evening, I see my dear mama in the spirit, Jane's there, and Truman. We gave thanks a lot in the early days. Uh, she taught me to pray. Um, I, I was, it was the death of me, honestly. I, it was the death of me. I, I wanted to do things for the Lord. I wanted to preach. I, wanted an, I just wanted to do something other than just give thanks. I mean, my seven-year-old can give thanks. Actually, my five-year-old can give thanks. My two-year-old can give thanks. In fact, my five-year-old's learning about at the meal, she gets a lot of attention and she just thanks God for any and everything she can think of. Like 10, how long does it go, five minutes? Like Larissa's giving me the eye and I'm like, no, let's, she's praying, let's just let her pray, let us let her pray it out. But she thanks God for everything. But it's such a simple activity that a five-year-old can lay hold of it. And so here I am, I'm getting delivered because God called, told me to come to Oak Lawn and just to thank him. And so here I am, just me and Jane, a lot of times Truman was there too, and we're just giving thanks and we're praising him. And I'm like, Lord, a, a five-year-old can do this. I'm a skilled man. I can do things for you. I just want you to minister to me. Just sit in this room and go, okay, I'm going to... Now! No, no, no. And it was the utter death of Michael Miller. It totally was learning to do this. Like all of you are like, oh, I get that Thanksgiving. I've heard that sermon before. Okay. Oh, ministering to the Lord. I think I understand. That's when we sing songs and we bless them. No, 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 no. I'm talking about like, like anting up, putting it all in that this is the thing. And that's, that's the foundation of this house. That's where it all began. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And so the Lord, though, the Lord, though, would give me revelation on its importance through another text, and it's the focus text. So all of that was setting up to this, and I want to look at Romans chapter 1. Flip over to Romans 1. We like the Bible. We really do. We love the Bible. I don't apologize for giving you a lot of Bible. Um, and this is like, this is a big chapter this is one of the biggest chapters in the Bible because of what Paul is laying out. Romans is probably uh, one of the best books ever written. Um, it unpacks salvation like, unlike any other book, and Romans chapter 1 defines the problem, specifically Romans chapter 1 to 3. The real famous, I think it's 323, where it says, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We use that a lot. But Romans 1 to 3 is leading up to that. How have we fallen short of the glory? And so in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says that, that uh, God has revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness, those men who suppress the truth, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And this is, this is really, uh, keep going, verse 20. It says, for since uh, the creation of the world, um, his invisible attributes, and his, etern- uh, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature. So these are his invisible attributes. It's his power and his nature. So his power is what he does. His nature is who he is. So it's his nature, who he is, what he can do, who he is, what he can do. It's invisible, but it's clearly been seen, being understood by what has made. So you can go outside and see by what has made his power and his nature, and it, it demands a response according to Romans chapter 1, verse 20. So there was a response the Lord was looking for. And in verse 21, we see the response. It says, for even though they knew God, 
Everyone say new God. So even though they knew God, there's a right response to God if you know him. This verse shows us that. So for though they knew God, they did not, they did not do two things. They did not honor him. Now that word for honor actually means to glorify or at the core, if you break it down, it means to make famous. So they did not, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They didn't give thanks. So they didn't do these two things. So this is the hinge. They did not honor glory, make him famous or give thanks. So because they did not do this, they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Now this verse seems so, so small, but I want you to see that this verse, it's like a hinge on a wall. And because they did not give thanks and honor, something opened up. Because they did not respond rightly to God, they were moved and removed from God. Your response to God matters. And because they did not respond, a, a door, a hinge opened up and, and they're, 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 they became futile in their speculations and their hearts were darkened. So futile, they became empty in their thinking and then they became dark on the inside. And then this litany of sin, I'm not gonna read the rest of, of Romans one, but this litany of sin is listed. They start exchanging it. And the main two things that are mentioned are idolatry and sexual immorality. So idolatry and sexual immorality come through this one verse. And all, can you put up the list, my list in Romans one? Look at all these, these things. These are all the things mentioned after this verse. Feudal in mind, foolish in heart, lust consumed them. Their body was dishonored exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped the created instead of the creator. They became twisted in their passions and desires. Homosexuality, this is the specific text that I talked a lot about in Oak Lawn. Like I had so, yeah, I won't get into it, but, but it's like men exchanged natural relations for, with women and men actually pursued men. Women pursued natural relationships with men and women pursued women. This is in Romans chapter one. It's a big, big text, especially in our culture today. So homosexuality is mentioned, full of every kind of wickedness, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malice behave, malicious behavior, gossip, backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. And then Paul's just like, he's listening to all this stuff and he's like, he's probably thinking about us in the future. He's like, they're just gonna invent evil. <laughs> they're gonna invent things and new ways of sinning. Like, I'm probably gonna run out of words, so this one line's gonna cover everything, <laughs> all right? Everything is mentioned in that. So they invent new ways of sinning, they disobey their parents, they refuse to understand, they break their promises, they're heartless, they have no mercy. That covers the gamut, does it not? But here I was in Oak Lawn. Here I was called by God, I felt to bring transformation to the city of Dallas. I felt like God was saying, son, you're, I, I really felt like the Lord, there's the history, but I knew that he wanted to do something through our lives, but he called me to Oak Lawn and just to minister to him primarily to give thanks. And then I read Romans chapter one, and I read the litany of things that came through that one hinge, and the hinge is that they did not honor him or give him thanks. 
So I felt like the Lord was saying, son, instead of dealing with the list, just come back to the hinge and begin to do what they didn't do and watch what I do through you and your little small offering before me. Your little small weak offering before me created this big swing and you look around, this all came forth from a few people honoring God and giving him thanks. And I, I, feel like, I feel like the antidote and the prescription for our hour, this little small hinge, it's so simple that we often get complicated, it gets complicated, we get confused, we get frustrated, and the Lord is just saying, would you come back to this place of honoring me with thanksgiving regularly and watch what I do? I'm like, whoa, it's that simple? Yeah, it's that simple. And I've not only seen it for our community, but I've seen it with individuals. I've actually seen individuals overcome sin and overcome struggles and sin cycles and addictions and behaviors by sitting in this room and joining us in doing this activity. Because we've really taken a mandate. I mean, we wrote it on the wall. That's how serious we are. You don't just write anything on the wall. We wrote it on the wall. Why do we write it on the wall? Because that's what we do, morning, noon, and night. If you come in here at 6 a.m., if you come in here at noon, if you come in here at 6 p.m., I guarantee you, those that come to prayer sets for the first 30 minutes, we have hammered it over and over. Where's my boy Joel? He's probably, yeah, have we not hammered this? I have said, Joel, you cannot sing what you feel. When you enter into the upper room prayer set, you can't just sing the coolest song that you want to sing. You are going to offer an offering of thanksgiving to the Lord for the first 20 to 30 minutes. And we do it. We, I mean, it's, it's like people, if you're here, it is like clockwork. Someone's going to be up here and they're going to launch off and they're just going to start thanking the Lord. And we have done that for eight and a half years. And I've just seen the power of this small little hinge opening up a massive door because what happens when we do this small little activity is that as the door opens, man, a flood of things come through. It's not as if we're not about other things. It's just that this one thing, specifically ministering to the Lord, specifically giving thanks, specifically giving praise and worship to him, it has to precede all things. But as soon as it doesn't precede all things and it just becomes something, we have gotten off because we've neglected and forsaken our first love. This is the right way for you, for me, for us collectively to love him. It's by bringing an offering to him because of what he's done for us. Come on, I wanna get some of you delivered from this Western mindset of like, me-centered stuff. We've got to get delivered out of ourselves. And like, if you don't know the will of God, this is the will of God for your life. Gather with others and just start ministering to his heart. There's a grace in this for you. I've watched it happen time and time. Y'all heard Michael Malden last week. That brother shouldn't be at a film company doing a reality show. I walked with him. I saw a front row seat of what the Lord did. But he gave himself to ministering to the Lord and a vision that wasn't his. And all of a sudden, God knew the deepest desires of his heart. And he's positioned now on the forefront of entertainment and film, which is his history. And he is like at the cutting edge of what God's about to do in Hollywood and entertainment. How did he get there? How did he get there? How did he get there? Because he's good looking and a good actor. No, that's not what happened. 
up. And although he is good looking, he is a good actor. What happened is he gave himself over to this one little hinge, this one little thing. He surrendered his life to it. He sacrificed everything for it. And all of a sudden, look at me, I'm on a reality show. What? Yes. That's what happened to Michael. I watched it. And so did y'all. He is good looking, isn't he? <laughs> so as I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm like, I'm like, okay, give thanks, give thanks. I'm looking at David, give thanks, give thanks. But I, I, as, I've, as I've studied this, I, I saw it one other place. And this is where I want to land. Um, if you want to minister to the Lord and understand how to minister to the Lord, um, I know that by the Holy Spirit, the Lord lives in all of us. But, but, but right now, the Lord, the man, Jesus, he's in a real place called heaven. And he's with his Father, and he's with those that have gone before us. It's a real place. It's not ethereal. It's not, it, it is a real place. There's a real throne. There's real angels. There's real four living creatures. Like There's an eternal sanctuary that he dwells in. One day, that sanctuary will come to earth. We're living for that day. One day that sanctuary will come to earth, but right now it is not on earth. But Jesus said, when you pray, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes? So we're to usher in as the church those realities today. But a lot of us, we don't spend enough time, I don't believe, thinking about what and where, where he is and what that looks like and where we fit in that picture. And so the two chapters that really paint that for you are Revelation 4 and 5. So flip over, we've done David, we've done Romans 1. I just wanna hit Revelation 4 and 5, and then we're gonna minister to one another. Is that cool? Just say, I like the Bible. Okay, I love Revelation 4 and 5. Um, the title of Revelation 4 in my Bible is The Scene in Heaven. I have another, uh, I have another Bible that, that, that describes it as the eternal worship sanctuary. Um, but it's just an important, important text. And if you look at Romans 4, I'm not, we're not, or Revelation 4, I'm not gonna read it all, but I have a slide. Um, do you have the list of Roman, Revelation 4? Yeah, so this is Revelation 4, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. 13 times in Revelation 4, which Revelation 4 is 11 verses, but 13 times in 11 verses does it mention the throne. Significant. And it's like, it's like the throne was standing, one sitting on the throne, around the throne, around the throne, out from the throne, before the throne, before the throne, middle of the throne, around the throne, sits on the throne, sits on the throne, before the throne, and on the throne. That's all mentioned in Revelation 4 in the beginning of 5. So this chapter is about the throne. And I don't know, um, I'm, I'm going to tie in David's tabernacle because I think David had a revelation of Revelation 4. Because he assigned Asaph just to sit and to give thanks on the earth. You remember that? Give thanks. You're just going to sit here and give thanks and give honor. And I think... In 1 Chronicles 25, it says that he built his tabernacle according to the design that God gave him. And I think God somehow, some way, gave David revelation of where he dwells. And so David created that environment on the earth through music, sounds, intercession, prayer, because of what he saw in Revelation 4 and 5. Although I don't think he had Revelation 4 and 5. But we do, thank God. So, 
So this is what I want to show you, because this has really been gripping my heart lately, and I've shared all this about the hinge to show you this one text. It's about the four living creatures. It's in verse 8. Well, verse 8 begins it. It's really in verse 9. But it says, in the four living creatures, so one was like a lion, one was like a calf, face like a man and an eagle, and those are just the attributes of God. They represent God, but there's these four living creatures, each one of them having six wings full of eyes around and within Day and night, they do not cease to say. And so they're always saying this. They're always saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So what they're proclaiming is they're proclaiming God's nature, that he's holy. And they're proclaiming that he'll always be ho- he's always been holy, he, always, he is holy, and he always will be holy. So it's like an all-encompassing thing about the holiness of God. But verse 9 is what I wanted to focus on. And when the living creatures, and when the living creatures... What's that next word? When the living creatures, what's that word? Give. When the living creatures give, what do they give? They give glory, they give honor, and they give thanks. Now, do you remember Romans chapter one, verse 21? What did the people not give? The people did not give glory, honor, and thanks. But in Revelation 4, 9, they do give glory, honor, and thanks. How do they give glory, honor, and thanks? They give glory, honor, and thanks by declaring collectively who he is, what he's like, and ultimately what he can do. I mean, it just, these texts are amazing about worthy are you, O Lord. You created all things. Because of you, all things exist. It's this great worship and praise before the Lord. And what I felt like the Lord said is, is son, Your ability to give glory, honor, and thanks will either open heaven or shut it. That the hinge, the smallest little hinge, it either opens heaven or it shuts it. The power of this little bitty activity, it either opens the door or it closes it. It's the smallest little act, but what it does if we continually, it's not just like, man, okay, I, 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 I was in a season of giving thanks. I'm not talking about a season of thanksgiving. I'm talking about a lifestyle of it. Like, I think we are just so filled with revelation that we need to harp on certain revelations more than others. Because certain revelation rests on other revelations. There's things that are true, but there's things that are more true, if that makes sense. Because some truths rest upon greater truths. And I am telling you, this is utmost, highest, 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 highest truths for us to rightly respond to the Lord with thanksgiving. I mean, even, 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 like, I love that the Catholic Church got this right, or like, um, Uh, liturgical communities get this right, that they call the broken body and the shed blood when they take it, they call it the Eucharist, which means to give thanks because it's the only right way for us to approach him is to give thanks. It does something to our hearts to enter his gates with thanksgiving in our hearts. But entering his gates with thanksgiving open up the gates for you to experience what's on the other side of it. It's like for many of us, there's this wall that we're like banging our head against and we're frustrated 
and we're cowering and we're going, man, is God real? And I'm mad because you called me this and not having it. It's like, what if you just like got over yourself and got over what you see and you started to really position your heart above it and give thanks that he's holy, he's holy, he, he was, he is, and he will be tomorrow and you give thanks on the other side before you get to tomorrow and you watch the Lord batter that gate that you can't seem to get through through thanksgiving things will open up i'm telling you thanksgiving disarms hell thanksgiving disarms doubt thanksgiving disarms it disarms depression it disarms fear thanksgiving is such a weapon it's not just a holiday in november it is like this massive tool that he's given us, but we've so underestimated it. We're like, I've been there. My five-year-old does that. My seven-year-old does that. Well, it's time that we become little kids again and really start to take serious this, the power of it. I know it's the smallest little things. None of y'all thought about the hinges on the door, but thank God there were hinges on the door because when you open up the door to come in here, they worked. And we just kind of get back to some of the fundamental basic things and thanksgiving is that. And it is a weapon that God has given us to literally, I believe, like posture as a community that, Lord, you're going to find a people in the design district that are thankful through and through. Through and through, Lord, you have done so much for us. There's a wooden cross that's blood-stained. There's a wooden cross that has nail prints and holes in it, but there's not a dead body on it anymore because your body was resurrected. And because of that blood-stained, old, rugged cross, I'm free and I have a lot to be thankful for. And I'm going to position myself in that place because it's all that I need. You're all that I need. You're all that I have. And I'm just grateful. Woo! I'm getting fired up. So some of us, I just want to call us to the altar. And here's how I want to call you. I just want to call us to a place of repentance. I want to call us to a place of repentance. And here's the thing is where your rub is this morning, like where life is rubbing you. And it's like, man, I'm, I'm mad about this. I'm frustrated about this. This is eating me up. I'm, I'm heavy about this. Use that as a catalyst to come before him and give him honor. Lord, I'm going to honor you in this. I'm going to put you before it. It's trying to Lord over you, but I'm going to honor you by saying, no, 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 no. In faith, I'm going to submit it to you. And I'm going to give you thanks for what you're going to do on my behalf, because you're good. You're loving. You're faithful. You're for me. You're not against me. Right? So who needs to confess that this morning? Would you just stand your feet?